you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Holy God, we thank you for your presence in this time and place and within each one of us. Help us now to open our minds, our hearts, our whole lives to receive the gift of your living word for us this day. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In the Gospel reading you've just heard, you've observed what might be the kind of climactic vignette, but in words, of chapter 11 of John's Gospel. I think it's helpful to know a little bit about what precedes that. First of all, Jesus and his disciples are somewhere north of this little town of Bethany, probably in the northern part, maybe even in Samaria. And Jesus receives a message from a family that he's close to, that he's already got a well-established relationship with, Mary and Martha, the sisters, and their brother, Lazarus. And the message comes to him that Lazarus is ill. And the sense is this isn't just a cold or the flu. I mean, this, this is a serious illness. It's clear that Jesus is almost like a kind of uncle or cousin to these three. That's the kind of relationship they share. But Jesus delays two more days in whatever town he was in the north before he and his disciples leave and travel to Bethany in the south where Lazarus and Mary and Martha are living. We get a hint in verse 15 or of a foreshadow that something significant is going to happen because Jesus tells his disciples, Lazarus is dead. He seems to just know a kind of premonition this has happened. And then he says, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. So so there's some sense that Jesus has something planned that's going to increase the faith of the disciples and that it's almost part of the plan to not be present when he's first been requested to go. So as Jesus gets close to Bethany, Martha comes out to meet him. And I think that John, the gospel writer John, wants to impress on us just how human this interaction is. And so what are Martha's first words? They're not words like, wonderful that you have come, thank you so much. No, this is what Martha says to uh, Jesus upon his arrival. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. (laughs) Pretty, pretty tough words, but... As I thought of those words, I thought, what priest or pastor, I'm sure Jamie can relate to this, has not experienced something like this, where they get a phone call in the morning, and a parishioner has desperately asked them to come to the hospital as soon as possible, and to bring communion, and if, if in this case, if it's a woman, she might be saying, my husband is gravely ill, and the family have gathered, and unfortunately, you can't come right away. You get delayed, and so you arrive in the early afternoon, and the wife greets you with, if you'd have come sooner, our whole family would have been here, and we could have done this together, but now they're gone. 
because they had to leave. And the kind of crestfallenness as priest or pastor that you feel because you've blown it. You, you have not met the expectations. So the interaction between Jesus and Martha, John makes it very clear just how human and, and in a sense ordinary it is for us. So Martha could be one of us very easily. Someone we know, real and human. And yet, six verses later, John has Martha saying to this Jesus, who she's kind of annoyed with, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. So now, John has Martha affirming Jesus as divine, one who has literally come from where God dwells. So then Jesus arrives at the home. Martha has come out, maybe met him a little distance from their house. So he arrives at the house and he encounters Mary, the other sister. And what are her first words? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So you can imagine Jesus' reaction at that point. So John has to assure us that Jesus is not a kind of hard-hearted, supernatural, alien Messiah that has come from God but doesn't care two hoots about human emotions and, and the sense of grief and loss. And so to do that, in the next four verses, just four verses, we read that Jesus is disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Jesus goes to the tomb and weeps. And John repeats that Jesus is greatly disturbed by what he's seen. So it's almost like he's reassuring us, no, it's okay, this Jesus is human, he cares about these people, he feels badly what's happened, and so on. And then Jesus acts. Now John includes a little kind of son-father, God the Father, conversation in between, and that stresses Jesus' divinity again. And then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Why is this narrative in John's Gospel? I think it's because John is trying to strongly impress on us, on the one hand, the humanity of Jesus. He's one of us. He disappoints familial expectations just like we do. And on the other hand, the divinity of Jesus, the raising of Lazarus, which is the foreshadow of Jesus' death and resurrection. This Jesus, this is the one who has power over physical death, the ultimate threat to our lives. And D Jesus doesn't just talk about having that authority or kind of hoping for it. He does it. He demonstrates it. He delivers humanity from death. So what does this have tonight to do with us tonight, with baptism and confirmation? Or for that matter, what does it have to do with the rest of Jesus' disciples gathered here tonight. Five persons are publicly professing their faith in their conviction of the ultimate truth. Our Creator has shared our life in the person of Jesus and has overcome for us the very thing that ultimately faces every one of us at some point in our lives and that is death. 
our death. And knowing that Jesus Christ is the one who has overcome that death changes everything, right down to how we will live our lives tomorrow. Let me use an example. Let's say uh, you're a young person and you're applying for a professional program at a university or college. And that program will certify you for the employment position that you have always wanted. It's something you, you know, you would almost talk about it as a calling or a vocation, something you're really passionate about. So naturally, your goal in registering in this program is to pass the final exams. So everything you do in that, let's say, three-year program is geared to help you prepare for and pass those exams. And as you interact with your fellow students who are in the same program, if you're a kind of decent moral person, you might take a kind of live-and-let-live attitude with your fellow students. So meaning that you help me, I'll help you, you know, in terms of getting the resources and finding the answers and completing the assignments. And if you aren't quite up to being that moral and decent, you might view your peers as competitors in that program. And you quietly try to get ahead of them and get a hold of the sources before they do. But it's very much you need to look after yourself on your own. And I want to suggest to you that these two approaches continue through our lives. I'll help you, you help me, or I need to look after myself first. Thank you very much. Both are driven by a concern that I might not get what I want or think I need. So there's that insecurity that I, I just, it might not make it, so I've got to strive for it. Now, imagine if, as you began this educational program, you were told by some very trustworthy authority that you have all you need to be successful in this program, to obtain your degree. You will have to do your work and so on, but, but you have it, and you are completely assured. In other words, the desired end for you and your vocation is being assured. You have that assurance. How would that change your approach? Well, hopefully, you wouldn't focus so much on passing the exam, but you would rather focus on learning all you can to be the best professional in that role once you have graduated, to equip yourself as, as firmly and securely as you could so that you could do the work that you feel called to well and, and bear that fruit in your life. And in terms of your peers in the program, well, naturally, you would collaborate and support one another. There wouldn't be any sense of competition because you knew that you had what it, what it takes. And everyone is excelling and helping others to do the same. So the focus is not on passing the test but on becoming all that you can with the potential you have. I want to suggest to you that this is the path of a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
This is the life of one who is baptized. This is the life of one being confirmed here this evening. You see, what Jesus reassures us of is that you and I and all of humanity were created to live eternally significant lives. We're made that way. We don't have to pass a test. (laughs) We don't have to try to run faster than the person next to us. We were all created to live eternally significant lives. And even though in our society there are many voices around us that deny that truth, both for themselves and for us, but the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, asserts this ultimate truth with ultimate authority. You know, sometimes, as the, as the colloquialism goes, we challenge people to put your money where your mouth is. Well, Jesus put his life where his mouth is and has overcome human death. The reality of a disciple's life is not only personal, it's not only an individual journey, it's a corporate one, like those collaborating college students And in the opening prayer for tonight that I led us in, we said these words, whose people are knit together in one holy church. And then we asked, grant us grace to follow your blessed saints, those who have lived eternally significant lives in a particularly public way so that we're aware of them and we we emulate them, in lives of faith and commitment. And there are... And there will be times when it appears that this life, our life, has failed. That the call to follow Christ has died in us. It's dried up. Do you know what happens then? The voice of God breaks through the door of the tomb, imprisoning our life, and calls to us, come out, and instructs our fellow disciples to unbind us and let us go. This is the living Christ that we follow. And these are, and you are, the saints who support us in living our God-given, eternally significant lives. Thanks be to God. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.